This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education X. Thank you for joining us. Enrollment in the U.S. public school system fell by about 1.2 million students between the fall of 2019, before the pandemic, and the fall of 2021, as students were returning to normalcy, we thought. The number fell from 49.2 million to less than 48 million. That's a drop of 2.5%. That's a big drop. Now, some of that change is simply due to the fact that the United States has fewer school-aged children in 2021 than it did previously, about 275,000 fewer kids of that age. But that still leaves about a million students who you would expect to see in public schools, but they weren't there. So, So what happened? Well, Professor Thomas Dean, an economist at the Stanford Graduate School of Education, has dug into this and has released uh, an Urban Institute uh, report that casts some light on the question. And I'm very pleased to have Tom with me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Tom, for joining me on the exchange. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, Tom, congratulations on your new study. It's gotten a lot of publicity in the media. So so let's get to the main point. You can't find a million students or more exactly, a million students are no longer in the public schools uh, over and above what you would expect from normal population change. So, So what happened? Well, this is exactly the enigma that motivated my collaboration with some data journalist colleagues here at Stanford and the Associated Press. And for me, this really began by my particularly close uh, observation of what's going on in California. Of that 1.2 public school enrollment loss, that really would fairly be described as an exodus from public schools during the pandemic, over 270,000 of it was in California alone. And so I began to wonder, okay, what are the learning environments these kids are experiencing? And particularly, I think these kind of data matter during the pandemic because our usual systems of trying to assess what's going on with kids were kind of broken. The tests they were sitting for were under very different circumstances with shifting populations of kids. So anyway, as we looked at these data in California, I began to see you know, it was less than 10% of that public school enrollment loss could be seen in increased non-public school enrollment, private schools and homeschooling. And yes, there was a big exodus of school age. Less less than 10%. I saw saw 14% in your paper, but maybe- That's overall, but I'm talking specifically of California. Oh, in California. Um, Yeah. Yes. So in California, it's less. But if we talk nationwide, we're talking about 14% of the kids seem to have migrated of that million that's or or so that you can't get your that that left the exodus or the 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 drop in the number 14% is going to private schools. Yes. So and even more went to homeschool enrollment. And so that was, and I'm talking about in the 21-22 school year when most public schools were back for in-person instruction. Yeah, well, so, let's talk about that private school thing first. Then we'll get to the, to the homeschoolers. But on the private schools, uh, how do you get your data on private schools? Because it's sometimes, you know, not easy. And the Catholic schools would not, they're the best at giving us data on private school, on their on their enrollments. And their enrollments went up 
I think in 2022, but they, in 2021, I don't think that they were up particularly, but maybe I've got that wrong. So tell me, first of all, about the private school story. Yeah, no, you're exactly right about Catholic school enrollment. If you take the two-year window into the 21-22 school year, it actually went down. So it was a, adding to the enigma that motivated our effort. So we went to every state we could that collected, seemed to collect in a consistent way, K through 12 enrollment data for private schools and organize their data. And so we we're able to do that for around 32 states in the District of Columbia. So we've covered well over half of the country. There. 32 and states. So, yes. Yeah, so there's, there's another 20 or 18 that you don't have that. For. Right. But I think this covered like something like 70 to 80% of school-age children at baseline in the pandemic. And part of what's motivating us here is if you look at the federal data sources, as of this day, they're still not reporting private or homeschool enrollment past fall 2019. Do private schools ever have to tell states that what their enrollments are? Are these, are these numbers that you're getting at all accurate or are they just whatever private schools want to report, that's what they report? Well, we... We privilege states where they are reporting data. It's part of like a, you know, exist standardized system for collecting data and, and other states where it just isn't, didn't occur or it was perhaps more voluntary, we set those aside. So there, there are those data issues that shaped the window where we could say something about this. But overall, we but you like feel 4%. like you've got a pretty good fix on the, on the private school enrollment that if we do if you had all the data, it wouldn't be that much different from what you're getting. Yeah, no, this is a really uh, large, you know, uh, and seemingly representative sample of the country because the states for which the data were available are states that had public school enrollment losses that were quite similar to the 2.5% figure you mentioned for the nation. But I also want to stress, I think one of the broader points of this initiative is how poor our data collection has been. I mean, our group went and did this bespoke data collection of some of the most fundamental educational indicators, because here and now, fully three years into a pandemic, these data were not available. Well, I quite agree with you. The U.S. Department of Education has always come up with data about the time that you're no longer interested in it. It's Well, you are a little bit if you're an historian, but for practical policymaking purposes, it's usually three to four or more years uh, uh, old and everybody can say, well, that no longer applies. <laughs> right. And so that was why we saw a real need to try to provide understanding and guidance for our academic recovery efforts through this effort. Well, so the private schools picked up some of this uh, departure from the public schools, but you're saying the homeschooling movement is probably more important because it was so small at the beginning. How many, what percentage of kids were being homeschooled on the eve of the pandemic, say back in 2019? Yeah, I believe it was on the order of like four percent and you know and it, it roughly doubled over the pandemic so in your and report we, i had a little trouble finding the actual number do you have the actual number yeah so so we're looking at the overall enrollment counts but not as a percentage of kids and since you mentioned this i do want to stress that the we, we tried to we privileged states where they were uh not relying on voluntary reports collecting these enrollment data. So our window shrunk 
a little further than it did for private schools to, I think it was 22 states in the District of Columbia, but again, covering just over half the nation and seemingly representative in terms of two school years under the pandemic. 30, 30%, 30% from a small, I mean, 30% from a small base, but it is a small base. Yeah, but the other thing I'd like to stress, if you look at the absolute numbers between the growth over this period in private school and homeschool enrollment, the homeschool enrollment growth was larger in absolute numbers. For every one newly enrolled student in private schools, there were nearly two kids who became homeschooled over this period. According according to the state records on that. Yeah, in these 22 states. Right. And th- and that and you're comparing the 22 states with the 22 states in that with the private school. So yeah, yeah. T- in in my brief, I uh, identified the growth over the first two school years of the pandemic in homeschooling was 184,000, and it was roughly 100,000 in private school enrollment. So uh, and and then if you extrapolate to the country as a whole from your states, assuming you got representative states, is that you, is that where you, you would roughly or? you would roughly double those numbers because these this group of states covers just over half the nation. So you double that, and you're getting up now to about uh, five or six uh, hundred thousand, right? You're, and then and then then you still have some kids you can't account for after that. Yeah, well, well, a part of that accounting is also to reckon with the population change so that you mentioned in your opening comments. So we, I also went to the census estimates and pulled their data on population change by age for the nation and particular states and replicated the, the U.S. Department of Education's reporting convention to identify school-age population as five to 17-year-olds. And we saw for the nation between April of 2020 and on the eve of the 21-22 school year, uh, roughly a quarter of a million uh, drop in the school-age population. So that explains a chunk of that uh, 1.2 million and also really explains where it's located in the U.S. because there was that overall decline, but a substantial pattern of domestic migration during the pandemic shifted where those school-age children uh, were living. So, yeah, uh, Governor Newsom went out to Florida to talk to DeSantis about why he, he life was better in California. Uh, and uh, so, so when I saw your your numbers there, I didn't see hardly any enrollment loss in Florida, but as you pointed out, a big change in California. So what's the difference between Florida and California? Well, a, a substantial part of it is this pattern of domestic migration during the pandemic. California, New York, Illinois, all lost uh, a lot of families with school-aged children and states like Texas and Florida gained Now, Texas and Florida still had some public school enrollment loss. I mean, it was a general phenomenon, but it was much attenuated uh, by these demographic patterns. So uh, now, but then, of course, Florida also kept its schools open. Uh, So did they have less uh, migration to the uh, homeschooling sector or less migration to the private school sector? Um, well, the keeping their schools open definitely helped stop public school enrollment loss. This is a question on which I think we have really good evidence. We have a, uh, 
uh, a quasi-experimental study that's now coming out in the American Educational Research Journal that documents an impact of going remote only, uh, increasing the flight of families from public schools, particularly among families of very young kids who didn't want to sit a six or seven-year-old in front of a computer all day. Florida's kind of interesting, though. So certainly staying open uh, would have stopped some of the public school enrollment loss, but they also had a substantial increase in homeschool enrollment over this period, along with this influx of families. And I suspect that their official homeschooling numbers understate the degree to which homeschooling went up um, because they had there were so many families moving in who probably chose to homeschool but didn't yet get um, uh, didn't yet report to the state that they were doing so. And of course, no one would know to follow up since they were newly arrived. Well, that's that's happened nationwide by all accounts. I mean, the, the U.S. Census Bureau came up with an exaggerated 11% of kids being homeschooled. I never believed that. But our Education Next data showed homeschooling doubling, which is not unlike what, what you're finding here. That it actually, we, we get it moving from 3% to 6%. So, uh, and I think that's fairly close to the kinds of numbers that you're getting there. Uh, but you might say this homeschooling is a temporary thing, even if it's gonna persist perhaps after some return to the schools, uh, is it really going to persist over the long run? The latest information I've had is that there's some signs that, it's, that people are going back to the public schools. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to hear more about that. I think I'm abiding with a little more agnosticism on that, simply because I was so surprised by the robust uh, homeschooling growth into the 21-22 school year when most public schools were back in person. And I would be inclined to think that parents might head back to uh, formal school, private or public, at key transition nodes, like maybe around sixth or seventh grade when kids start middle school and everyone's undergoing a school transition. But I think there's, there's just a lot we don't know about what's going on in homeschooling. And we're hearing interesting anecdotes about the way different people are experiencing it. Um, but yeah, far too little is known about its impact on kids and on families. Right. right. The real question is what's happened in the fall of 22, 2022? Because by this time, things uh, have really settled down. 2021, there's still a lot of question marks what's going to happen. Uh, but 2022 is, you know, fewer of them. And and I think there is some signs in the fall of 2022. So maybe your next, are you going to do a next round here to uh, give us an update again? I think we're likely to, but I really also want to shift the focus to our youngest learners. Because I really believe there's a potentially serious bias and how we're viewing our academic recovery efforts that's suggested by what these new data are telling us. And, and that's simply that like our youngest learners have had the most dramatic learning disruptions. Pre-K enrollments fell dramatically, state-run pre-K programs lost a decade of enrollment gains. And we're seeing these uh, enrollment disruptions at kindergarten, early elementary grades, all young, vulnerable learners at a developmentally critical stage who are not, haven't yet aged into our testing windows. Um, but I feel as if like, our academic recovery discourse hasn't put a real focus there. Like there was a survey of school business officials last fall that got quite a bit of attention and where they discussed their priorities for spending federal ESSER dollars. And the early childhood area was the least popular item 
on which districts were spending recovery funds. And I think we've got what I've called elsewhere a streetlight effect, where our attention is drawn to where the data are, are shining a bright light, kids in testing windows, kids still enrolled in public schools. But there are many kids outside of those windows where dramatic disruptions have been occurring and our academic recovery discourse isn't really focused on them. Well, that's a really good point because I think you're absolutely uh, correct that a lot of parents said, look, at the school isn't open anyhow. Why am I sending my child to, uh, to school when there's no school to send the child to? I'll do something else and maybe I'll set up a... Uh, something in the neighborhood, maybe I'll be doing something that's that's uh, homeschooling or or comparable to homeschooling, and uh, and but then the question really is: is that going to persist, or will parents uh, adjust uh, once the system adjusts? And uh, we we will we will discover that. But now the other point that you pay less attention to, but I've heard is that the problem could be even more severe than your data is suggesting or the U.S. Department of Education is suggesting that we could be getting over-enrollment reports, in especially in the high school. A, schools claim that kids are still there, but they're really chronically absent. They're not ever showing up. They still get counted because it's very useful to count kids if you're going to get money from the state or just to make, you know, uh, keep your numbers inflated. So are you seeing any possibility that we're, we're seeing high school kids saying, I'd rather work at the grocery store than go to school. The jobs are out there now. I, I've found a nice job. I'm happy. I've, I've encountered these kinds of students. I know they exist, but do they exist in numbers? Yeah, no, that's an important point. And I think an emerging story, like we just saw some new data on chronic absenteeism for New York City that were eye-popping. And it caught my attention too, because we're seeing similar numbers for California, where in 21-22, there was just a substantial increase in rates of chronic absenteeism. So we're focusing on official enrollment counts, but there's a continuum from being an enrolled to you know, uh, or unenrolled to being enrolled, but effectively not in the classroom. And so we need to be paying attention to that entire continuum. And I've been a little frustrated in trying to, you know, understand our systems for tracking uh, uh, truants, because it seems kind of decentralized and not very coherent in many communities. And again, as an example of kids experiencing serious academic disruption during the pandemic, but often being outside uh, the discourse on academic recovery, which focuses on, with good reason, on serving the kids who are sitting in the desks. Well, so what I have heard from people in the business that uh, there was a, a clear effort to count everybody as present in school if you had any possible excuse for doing so, so that when they were online, all you had to do was click once during the course of the day and you were present for the full day. You didn't need to show anything right. more than that. And you didn't count anybody as um, not enrolled until they made a definite statement communicated to the school system, no, I'm no longer enrolled in the schools. So and that, kids don't do that. They just don't show up. That's the way they handle this situation. Yeah, well, the data are actually predicated on a kind of federal reporting convention, which is uh, 
kids in seats as of a census day, which is typically the first Wednesday in October, like it's an early October date. Um, but you're right that many of those kids might not have finished the school year or may have been officially enrolled or chronically absent or in those early days, a few idle like mouse clicks would count as, as being engaged, but there is that census day property to the official enrollment counts. And I think the broader story here is just how poor the data are that we're using to guide us through an unprecedented crisis. Yeah, definitely. Now you don't talk about charter schools. Do we know anything about the drift from district schools to charter schools? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. I mean, they're in the public school counts that we use, but uh, the limited data I've seen suggests they had somewhat less enrollment loss, but they are subject to some of the same broader forces around demographic change, uh, I think. And I, you know, I also do want to stress that I think another dimension to this story looking ahead is what those dramatic demographic changes, you know, that varied so much across states and within states is going to mean for the fiscal health and future of many public school districts. We're already seeing a lot of growing rhetoric about financial pressure to close under-enrolled schools. And I think there'll be, and there's also some uh, uh, similar discussions around possible uh, staff reductions in response to chronic under-enrollment. Well, everybody's talking about the fiscal cliff once the federal government pulls uh, out uh, the COVID money they've been handing over. And that's uh, been big time money uh, the, the the schools have been in clover for quite a while now, but that day that day is uh, going to come to an end fairly fairly quickly. So I'm sure you're absolutely right. Uh, but let's uh, let's finish on an optimistic note. There were some states that did pretty well at keeping enrollments up. I just looked through your list, and I saw South Dakota, Montana, Iowa, North Dakota, all looking well. There were losses, but they were relatively small as compared to what was going on elsewhere in the country. So can you explain the good news? Well, I think these are places that tend to remain open during the pandemic. And uh, and that certainly would contribute to that. And it might have been just a, a feature of the context, too. I mean, more rural communities, uh, people may have felt uh, relatively insulated and been relatively insulated from COVID because of the way they could, they could space differently. So, uh, you know, that, that has probably been an explanation of why that occurred. And we certainly saw interesting in the small subset of rural schools that did go remote uh, during the pandemic, they actually had a substantial flight away. But, you know, uh, those school reopening decisions, as it turned out, really mattered. I mean, parents voted with their feet uh, when they didn't have an option uh, for their kids. Uh, particularly those young kids that couldn't reasonably sit in front of a computer all day. Well, Tom, this has been a great conversation and your study is really uh, so informative and uh, and really adds a new dimension to our understanding of what uh, has happened over the last uh, few years. And so thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. I have been speaking with Thomas D., Professor of Economics at the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University. He is the author of a recently released report by the Urban Institute entitled Where the Kids Went, Non-Public Schooling and Demographic Change During the Pandemic. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon. 
when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.